The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to the Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Cox, editor of Reuters Breaking Views in New York. For the final episode of our summer series, I was delighted to welcome Jason Furman up to our Times Square studio. Jason was recently named Professor of the Practice of Economic Policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. It's a position he's eminently qualified for, not just because he's got a Ph.D. in economics from Harvard. He spent all eight years of the Obama administration involved in crafting policy affecting the U.S. economy. His most recent role was as head of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. So you wouldn't be totally surprised to hear that Jason has some strong, divergent views about what the Trump administration has been up to. As you'll hear, we discuss tax, infrastructure, immigration, trade, and regulatory proposals that have emanated from the Trump administration. Though Jason naturally shares the White House's ambition of revving up American growth rates, he doesn't think these policies or these prescriptions will necessarily get us there. That's not to say there are no areas of common ground. For instance, Jason said he was disappointed to have never managed to lower the corporate tax rate from 35% when he was working for President Obama. And he supports some ideas around infrastructure, such as reconfiguring the way the air traffic control system works, though that proposal looks unlikely to pass through Congress as it stands. Anyway, give a listen to my chat with Jason Furman. So, Jason, civilian life, how is it treating you? I love it. I walked out of the White House on the very last day of the Obama administration, and I miss some of my friends there. But I don't miss the pace, and I do love that I'm just spending so much time thinking about issues, writing about issues, um, speaking about issues, and really. And you were there, but you were there for all eight eight years, years, right? All eight years. Yeah, it was great. I mean, it was just the experience of a lifetime to walk in, in the midst of a financial crisis, walk out with an unemployment rate in the four percent range, feeling like you know I had helped him, President Obama, really you know, make a difference and contribute to something. But, you know, it was a chapter. It had a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I don't know. I mean, I remember January 2008. It was just a firestorm. It was crazy, wasn't it? Or I I guess, (laughs) sorry, 2009. (laughs) Exactly. When you guys came in and, I mean, it it was a baton passed to you that was Essentially on fire. Oh, yeah. The transition um, was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. I mean, the election uh, night was Tuesday night. Wednesday morning by 9 a.m., there were three people in campaign headquarters out of the 1,000 staff. Me, the other person that did economic policy for the campaign, and some random person. I'm not entirely sure why he was there, but we ended up hiring him to do economic policy as well. Everyone else was just hungover, sleeping. And I was there trying to start to put together the, you know, what became the Recovery Act. And you were trying to staff a government at the same time you were putting together on multiple fronts, fiscal, housing, financial, autos, you know, a plan that I think in most respects, uh, you know, did pretty well. And you had to do it with just an extraordinary urgency. Yeah. What's going on? I mean, it's kind of, it must be kind of, you must be watching this with, I don't know, not schadenfreude, is the, probably envy, you know, the, to see that the Trump administration has come in and they have none of those problems. You have the market at, at record highs, keeps hitting record highs. Um, they haven't had to deal with, I mean, they've, you know, relatively okay economic growth. 
unemployment at you know under five percent, corporate profits through the roof. I mean, is it, yeah, is look, it somewhat I feel, bittersweet looking? No, I feel no. great. I mean, right. I. Every time I see a good jobs number, I'm happy. Every time I see a good GDP number, I'm happy. I genuinely... Yeah, no, of course. You have to be. I mean, it's your country Um, and it's the people and... But, you know, I do wonder, you know, how they haven't, for example, filled most of the personnel in their administration when somehow, you know, President Obama managed to do it while doing, you know, a lot more complicated set of things on the policy side. Although, um, I guess he didn't... have to also do Twitter at the same time. I think it's sort it's of really important. It's really important to do Twitter that rather came later. Than, but yeah, you didn't. Ha- I mean, I guess you guys would have had that in the beginning, but it wasn't quite like it is now. Um, but w- explain to me a little bit. I, I, I've you see what's happening in Washington as obviously as a keen observer like yourself. You see that not a lot is happening in terms of policy. You know, pro growth policies. A lot of the things that the market. I assume, thought was going to happen. That's why we had that 15, 20% rally or whatever it was. None of that's happening. The place looks to be more dysfunctional than ever. And yet we keep hitting, at least in the stock market, new highs every day. Am I missing something? Or is this this one of those, yeah, what is this? Explain that. I think two things are going on. One is a global macroeconomic story. Our corporations, our earnings are disproportionately exposed to the rest of the world. The rest of the world is doing a lot better than it was doing before, and the expectations have picked up a lot, and that's a good thing, and it's a rational thing. The second thing is that the markets, a lot of different measures, show are really discounting risk right now, and um, you know a lot of the spreads... A lot of the other measures of volatility and risk are perception are really quite low. That makes me much more nervous because you know, we have um, none of the appropriations bills passed. We have you know, no clear path on the debt limit. Trade, I think there's a huge amount of uncertainty in our trade policy, immigration, et cetera. So that second I find irrational. At this stage, though, I don't think there's much of a Trump effect in the market's data. You used to see, for example, infrastructure stocks did better than other stocks. You're not seeing that mm. anymore. You're not even seeing banking stocks out Yeah, they've come back others. down. The dollar strengthened a lot on the expectations of, for example, a fiscal expansion. It's retraced most of those gains. So most of the indicators you would look at to discern Trump policy, you're not really seeing anything in them. So I think it's a broader story of you know, stronger global economy, and risk off half of that. I think the market's reading correctly. The other half makes me nervous. So the other half, I mean, so you see VIX at like record lows. You see um, junk bond spreads to, to, to investment grade, things like that. Uh, right, exactly. Do you suggest that, that people aren't, aren't appropriately measuring or factoring in the risk of what, though, of, of a recession or just a failure to get things done? I mean, what, what is right, the... Right. I mean, for the biggest stuff in the economy has nothing to do with the president of either party. Any given year, there's a 15% chance of a recession. So I think in the next three years, there's about a 50-50 chance that we have a recession. That's not a based on any analysis of where the economy is today, not based on anything about President Trump, just, right. just a historical fact. So one is, is factoring in those types of outside risks. But second, I think there are policy risks. I think there are risks around the debt limit that are being underappreciated by the markets right now. And um, trade policy 
you know, there were some crazy things said on the campaign about 35, 45% tariffs on China and Mexico. Then the administration walked away from those pretty quickly, and so there was a lot of relief. But now, you know, we're seeing Argentina's national security on steel. The Europeans are poised to retaliate. Would we retaliate against them? Some of the honeymoon with China seems to be fading. So I think there is more downside than upside risk in trade policy. And, and one bad thing about trade policy, or one reason to be nervous, doesn't require congressional action. This is something that the administration can act on its own. So I mean, let's get into all the meat of policy risk. I mean, and I'd love to get your perspective, certainly, on some of these some of the issues. But going, uh, sticking with trade a little bit. So you're right. We have not seen the 35, 45% tariffs on, on China or Mexico. Um, we've seen, uh, you know, they, they want to renegotiate NAFTA, to which the Mexicans and the Canadians are saying, sure, let's do that. The steel thing is now even being pushed off to after tax reform, which, you know, that could be a very long time. Um, is this, but, but there is still the fact that, that you don't, as you say, you don't necessarily need congressional approval to do some, some pretty significant uh, things to our, our trade policy. Those, of course, would affect those companies, those S&P 500 companies that get whatever it is, 60% of their revenues from abroad. Yeah. No, and there's a real asymmetry in trade policy. If you want to liberalize trade, it's really complicated. You need to get an agreement with other countries, and you need to get Congress to assent to that. If you want to add new barriers, president has a lot of tools to do that all on his own. Doesn't need certainly doesn't need foreign countries right. to agree and doesn't need Congress to agree. And so that basic asymmetry built into the law is one that, you know, my guess is over the next year or two, if things are harder to get done through Congress, the administration will want to act. President Trump, you know, has been it will want to do something. Right. There's some issues that right. he's been inconsistent on. Trade and protectionism is one for decades now. He has had a real zero sum, you know, someone else's gain is our loss mentality. Right. He looks at trade deficit relations. as an up or down. Right. Where we and, win or lose. Right. And that's a. I think that's a completely mistaken yeah. attitude. It goes against everything we know from centuries of, of economics, and. You know, I, I remain worried about it. But, you know, I mean, it's funny, it, it, although I guess he's a he is a Republican now. He wasn't always a Republican. But protectionism is not. I mean, if you look back historically in the United States, the Republicans seem to be more protectionist in their approach to trade than Democrats. It's mixed. I mean, certainly Ronald Reagan was actually reasonably protectionist in his stance. It's a bit of a different world then than it is now. And it was a little bit easier and less costly to our economy. Now other countries have choices. So when we don't strike a trade deal with the Pacific and Asia, China does, Europe does, mm -hmm. and trade gets diverted from the United States to them. So it's more of a multipolar world and we don't have as much of a luxury. Um, but yeah, certainly President Reagan was was more well, so. Well, you go back to like um, William McKinley and I mean, you know, uh, hundreds of, you know, 245 years of whatever of protectionism. Even even didn't Trump even try to say that Lincoln was a protectionist or he had. Uh, certainly um, the U.S. Trade Representative Lighthizer. Right. Made that argument based on one out of context statement. The statement actually was about um, Lincoln wanted to raise taxes to have more government spending. And the way we collected taxes then was, was through tariffs. Tariff. So the thing they quoted was actually Lincoln being in favor of a big government with higher taxes. 
You like that. Not, not quite as long-standing <laughs> a Republican view. So, um, all right, turning from trade, which that's interesting. I hadn't thought about the asymmetry of the whole thing. In other words, you, yeah, the point is to get a TPP, you have to do a lot of work. You've got to get – but to, to rip it up, you don't have to do very much. Exactly. And that's the case for steel tariffs, for instance. Right. Exactly. And there's a lot of authority. Even the though there could be a fight. Security in, grounds yeah. on all sorts of things. To, to raise what do you think of the steel tariffs that? concept? This idea that it's an it's that I don't know it's a national security issue that that's laughable. You know, about one percent of our steel is used by defense. Very little of our steel comes from China. Almost all of it comes from our friends like Canada and Europe. There's nothing related to national security in the current economic situation for steel. It's just a pretext. And it's a pretext that would hurt American manufacturing. We'd raise the price of steel in the United States relative to what our competitors in Germany, the United Kingdom, and Japan are paying for steel. And so our manufacturers in every other industry, and there's 40 workers downstream for every worker in steel, it's 40 that are using yeah. steel, um, will be disadvantaged. Well, this was the, wasn't this the experience of the 2003 or whatever? Yeah, the exactly. Bush and there was a letter that was signed by every former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors from you know, the most liberal to the most conservative. The only letter I'm aware of that every living chair, with the exception of um, Chair Yellen, who is not in a position to, mm -hmm. to have an opinion on this, signed. And, and just I, I think the economics are, couldn't be more clear cut. All right, let's turn to something that I know you're in favor of and, and actually seems to have some of the most bipartisan support, which is infrastructure. There was, as you mentioned, some of the infrastructure stocks had, had outperformed early after the, the election. Now they seem to have come down because there seems to be a real deflation in expectations that anything will get done. What's your prognosis? Yeah, my prognosis is that very little will happen in the area of infrastructure. That makes me sad because I think it's a real opportunity um, for this country. I think it's something the president really does believe in. I think much of the fault lies in the White House, which hasn't really put forward anything in the way of a plan for it. But you know, con congressional Democrats aren't really in a mood to work with this White House on anything, given uh, you know their perception of how this White House has behaved. You know, the Congress was considering privatizing air traffic control. That's something the president, President Trump, put forward. Actually, I think that was a good idea. And well, they did it in other places. Canada did it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of countries have done it around the world. It's been successful in all of them. Our air traffic control system is outmoded, poorly managed, um, focused on multiple tasks rather than focused solely. The government should be focused on safety. A private entity on behalf of all the stakeholders in the system could manage it. So um, that's one of the... Well, why do you think that one's dead, too? Um, you know, there's a whole set of politics around it. Um, it involves consolidating some of the centers, getting some efficiencies. And, you know, anytime you say efficiencies, there's somebody at the other end of that getting squeezed, and, and they don't love that squeezing. Right. I mean, uh, some of the other infrastructure ideas that came out, you saw Wilbur Ross and I think Peter Navarro had a plan, which was a sort of using private money and leveraging it, use, you know, as it took to create, I think they said a trillion dollars of infrastructure investment. Uh, you've certainly also had there were more demo plans from the Democratic side, which were more about using public money to and leveraging public money for for infrastructure. Is it is it the modality? Is it the the way of doing it, or is it, that's the problem, or is it just the politics? There's certainly a debate over that, and I think private money plays a really important role in infrastructure. I just don't think it needs a lot of government help. If something has a good private rate of return, you know. 
BlackRock has a ton of money that's looking to chase as much infrastructure as they can. We don't need to give them tax credits to do it. They just need to go do things that are economic. Um, and then for things that aren't, I think there's a real role for public funding. So that's my own view of the substance. But yeah, certainly right. there's a big division. It's funny, you know, I was recently in Colombia and there they're bringing in lots of money to build tollways and that kind of thing. And you go around the world, there, it almost feels like the rest of the world's a little more privatized in some uh, infrastructural assets, that is. Um, and in, Amer in the United States, we're we're, we seem to be almost behind. Is, what is your perception of this? Well, one difference between us and a country like Colombia, and I've actually uh, been there and, and talked to them about their infrastructure financing in detail, we have much more access to capital markets than they do. So the federal government can borrow at 2%, a little bit over 2%. That's a much cheaper way to finance infrastructure than the rate of return demanded by private investors into it. Other countries have somewhat less ability um, to borrow, less ability in terms of debt. So it's actually, I think, a somewhat more costly way to deal with it. Do we have even less of an excuse to yeah, to, right. to to argue for our crummy roads? Yeah, or we should we should just be we should be. Look, I'd rather pay for it, but it's also, um, you know, if we need to borrow, we can borrow cheaply for it too. Yeah, taxes. You know, there is. Uh, there is, a, there is now a sort of pivot, if you will, from the Republicans, and, and at least because the health care debate has been so uh, rancorous, to, to reducing taxes or reforming taxes. What, do you actually think we get reform? Do we get reduction? Do we get anything? Look, we really need tax reform um, in this country, and that tax reform should have three characteristics. Number one, it should make our system more competitive more economically efficient. Number two, it should reduce the amount of uncertainty in the tax system. And number three, while doing one and two, it shouldn't make other problems that we have worse. Namely, it shouldn't increase the budget deficit. So I think the real policy key to do one, two, and three is to do a revenue-neutral tax reform, do it the way President Reagan did in 1986, broader base, lower rates, distribution neutral, revenue neutral. If you did something like that, it would last. It would be something that you could count on. That's the way you should do it. I'm worried that Congress will choose to go the path of tax cuts. And the problem with tax cuts is they violate number two and three that I just said. They'd be temporary. They'd add instability and unpredictability into the system. And they'd add to our deficit, so they'd make another problem we face even worse. Well, congressional leaders, Republican congressional leaders, have now backed off on a on a border adjustment tax. So there, there goes a trillion that you could have used to pay for those cuts. What does your equation look like? I mean, I've spent a lot of time on the numbers of business tax reform when I was in the Obama administration, and we put out a framework that would have gotten the tax rate to twenty eight percent. Corporate tax rate. Corporate tax rate, sorry. Thank you. The corporate tax rate, 28%. That was thirty-five. From 35 is the, is the federal one. That wasn't an ideological thing. I would have loved to have gotten it to 25 or to 23 or to 20. We could not find enough loopholes to the pay The president promised 15. Right. So if you added up all the loopholes in the system plus some things that you know can't really define as a loophole but that you could do and reform – it's hard to get much below that. 
um, Ways and Means Chairman Dave Camp um, put out, he was a Republican Ways and Means Chairman yep. a couple of years ago, he put out a plan, he got the corporate rate down to 25. I have never seen anyone put down the details of how they'd get the number below 25, 28%. And you know, so when people are talking at lower than that, you know, there's something a little bit delusional about that, at least if you think you're going to pay for it. Well, certainly you can if you just jack up the marginal rate on in- personal income tax. Oh, that's true. I suppose. But I mean, obviously, that's to your point. You're not trying, you're trying to be re- neutral right. in some right. way. And look, I don't think it's a bad way to reform the tax system to shift taxation from the corporate level to the individual level because corporations are mobile. When their rates are too high, they're going to move their income, they might move their production to other places. But you know, that's not what these plans are doing. Um, so what do you think will actually, I mean, if you had to make a, well, you, I mean, having, as you said, the, the Obama, when you were in the Obama administration, you had plans, you never, you couldn't get it. Right. Why, why couldn't you get it done there? Uh, and are, are the you know, conditions different? It's a real regret of mine. I mean, what happened was right after the Republicans took the Senate in 2006, both Leader McConnell and President Obama wanted to work together on two priorities. One was trade and the other was business tax reform, and they wanted to do both of them. And the decision was made to put trade first and have tax reform come second. Trade, to get just even the Trade Promotion Authority, the fast track, ended up taking about a year and a half. And then TPP used up the rest of the time without ever actually passing. So um, it was the same committees that were dealing with trade and tax. And so I think it's just... um, you know, it was just that order that we put them in. But I'd love, um, yeah, so it's a regret of mine that we didn't do it. I would love to see it happen. Um, tax cuts, on the other hand, I think are the thing that have much higher odds. Not 100%. I mean, if you want to, you never want to bet 100% that Congress, especially this Congress, is going to get anything done. I think there's a good chance nothing happens. But if something happens, my guess is it's about a trillion dollars of tax cuts. All right, let's turn to deregulation. This is certainly something that when you talk to people in the marketplace, you talk to CEOs, they all say the one, they do see some sort of relaxation of regulation, which they see as a positive for their businesses, you know, from railroads to banking to consumer products. I hear this. Um, And this is something that, for the most part, is being done without legislation. It is relaxation from various agencies and bodies. Do you buy that as a sort of a positive for the economy? I think it's the case that some regulations, when you roll them back, you'd get a bit more economic growth, but it still might not be worth it from a public policy perspective. Right. So putting pollutants in the air or water or whatever it might be. So they are rolling back the rules on coal-fired power plants. There is a chance that that will lead us to have more growth in the short run. I think it's only a tiny bit more. But it would come at the expense of you know, more climate change and more damage to our environment. Mm. Even there, the business community, um, much of it was not with that change, especially with withdrawing from Paris, because they understand that more of the future is going to be in greener forms of energy, um, both renewables, natural gas, and that this might slow our movement to that. You know, there's another thing called the fiduciary rule or the conflict of interest rule, which is about protecting retirement savers. And right now, or in the past, brokers would have a conflict of interest. They'd get some type of payment from the product they were advising their clients to put their money into. 
They didn't put the client's best interest at heart. We changed that. Um, the, but that, that one's interesting because one, one, one of the arguments I hear about that is you, you d- it was changed, but it was the Department of Labor, I believe, that is meant to enforce that rule. And people say, well, well that should naturally reside with the SEC. People say that because the SEC wasn't doing anything. Right. So it was pushed to the Department of Labor right. because the SEC right. was, was right. failing. And it's for tax-preferred accounts. If you want to take your own money outside the tax system and do whatever you want with it, that's fine. There's a lot of rules already for 401ks and it's a retirement, hence labor. Right, right exactly. It's it. all about protecting uh, retirees and their savings. It only takes place in those accounts. And, you know, I, I, I thought that was a good rule. We worked a lot. We, we built some exceptions in to give some flexibility. The administration appears to be rolling it back. They're doing it a little bit on the slow side, but they appear to be rolling it back. If they do, that would make the stock price of financial institutions go up because they're getting more money and retirement savers are getting less money. So that would be a transfer from people saving for retirement to those corporations. It would show up in a higher stock price, but that wouldn't mean that the country was was better off. What, what do you think about this idea of, I mean, they're not talking about completely rolling back Dodd, the Dodd-Frank Act, but certainly there's been quite a, I mean, that was why Goldman Sachs was up 20 some odd percent and Morgan Stanley and all the banks um, after the election in, in the office near where you uh, used to work uh, in, in the White House run by Goldman Sachs uh, alum, uh, Gary Cohn. Are you worried about the rollback of the, the Dodd-Frank or, or what, what, what worries you about what you hear from the administration on banking reform? Yeah, like in a number of areas, there were statements during the campaign that were very extreme the actions on Dodd-Frank since the campaign have been much less extreme. The Treasury put out a white paper on the banks. It had a certain amount in it I didn't, I didn't particularly love, but nothing particularly atrocious or radical. The people they've appointed have been the types of people that a, uh, you know, Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio. Yeah, well, like Randy Quarles as the vice chairman of the Fed, which would oversee a lot of the regulatory aspects of the of yes. the agency or of the central bank. In his testimony this week was, um, was basically saying, keep the stress tests. Now, he had a different take on it, but it was still about keeping a test. Yeah. So I think I think you're seeing financial regulation will be dialed and it'll be dialed in the wrong direction because you know we're f- less than a decade off of a huge crisis caused in part by lax supervision that allowed all sorts of practices to flourish in the cracks and the shadows between different regulators. And that's where something like FSOC plays such an important Mm. role, looking across the system as a whole. And so there's some walking away from all of that, but it's, you know, walking a few steps away from it, not, um, you know, not running to a completely different place. One area where the the, um, administration has delivered on its promises is certainly immigration. How do you see it? For, as an economist, I mean, what, are you, what do you think about the Trump administration's views and moves to limit, whether it's visas or travel restrictions? How do you think that's going to hit the economy? I think that could easily be the most economically consequential thing that this administration does, and it will be economically harmful. You have people from all over the world that are hardworking, educated, entrepreneurial, have all sorts of skills. The evidence is that when they come here, they raise our game too. 
that people are more likely to you know, innovate when they're around foreign workers, that themselves are innovative. These people want to come here, contribute to our economy. Um, I think it's madness not to let them. I mean, haven't they already been successful in some in some way? And in, in even if they haven't um, over, uh, overturned legal challenges to, for instance, the travel bans, I mean, you see fewer people coming to the country. Yeah, no, you do, the you know the evidence so far is fewer people coming to the country. I worry about fewer talented people. I certainly hear it when I travel to other countries that they're thinking, um, you know, more. And this is just a global realignment. More broadly, countries that have been staunch allies of the United States and the United Kingdom, saying, you know, between Brexit and Trump. They're thinking harder. Can they integrate more with France? Can they integrate more with Germany? Can they form more partnerships um, with those types of countries? And that does long-run damage to to us in the world and to us economically. So let's turn to the Democrats. They came out with uh, a better deal, which is a, a series of sort of economic ideas Many of them were are, are things that you, have, of course, dealt with or, or tried to put forward in the White House and in, in many cases did uh, succeed in doing so. One of the things that I thought was interesting to look at was their view about the concentration of, of corporate power in the United States. And, and there's a, the idea that basically mergers and consolidation is giving people a raw deal. And they point out, you know, cable, airlines and things like that. What's your view on the the idea that we might need a sort of 21st century trust buster? I think it's an idea that needs to be discussed and thought about um, a whole lot more, and I'm glad to see it on the agenda in a bigger way. There's a wide range of evidence that there's more concentration in the economy, that this represents a degree of monopoly power, that this could be contributing both to slower productivity growth and to rising inequality. You see it in a lot of sectors. Um, You name some of them, airlines, cable, health insurance, elsewhere. Some of this is natural. You have what economists would call a network externality. You You would rather be on the same Facebook as all your friends rather than have 10 different competing Facebooks that don't talk to each other and you can't quite figure out where to find your friends, you know, we're better off probably with one social network like that rather than 10. You certainly wouldn't want to take Facebook and force them, you know, everyone into 10 different Facebooks where they can't um, find each other. It's I not guess like how is an airline that different? It's, it's like sort of like a physical airline. network effect. Well, I mean, they can, you can change planes and change airlines too. So I don't, um, but you know, I think with all of these things there's a little bit of trickiness because how much of it is due to efficiency and superstars prevailing and how much of it is due to policy. And I think part of it is. We've had laxer antitrust enforcement for decades now. The pendulum really swang in the direction of not being worried about these types of things. So you look at a place like the Stigler Center at the University of Chicago, which is a champion of free market economics. They're making even more extreme statements about antitrust than you see you know, the Democratic Party making right now. So I think we need to have more of a conversation about what the facts are, what the co- of concentration, what the consequences of this are for our economy, what can be done about it. A lot of the solutions are not straightforward because you don't want to kill the goose that laid the golden egg, but that doesn't mean we don't want to do anything. What about monetary policy? I think broadly speaking, the Fed and Chair Yellen have done an excellent job 
the United States. So you is, would you would you would you know, nominate her oh, for I would another definitely, term? I would be thrilled to see her have a second term. I think she's done a great job. We have the unemployment rate pretty much exactly uh, where we'd want to have it. We have the inflation rate at or below where we would want it to be. At times, their forward guidance has been off. They've said they're going to do blank, and then they don't end up doing blank. But you know what? The reason they don't end up doing blank is because the economy turned out a bit different. Some event happened somewhere in the world, and, and they've been very reactive. And that reactiveness has actually worked out and um, served us well. So, How do you think the market would respond to, to President Trump not nominating her for another term? I, I think it depends on who he picked. My guess is that you could get away with that from a market perspective. But, you know, there's two worries I'd have about other people. And there's, and there's other people that would be good. I just don't think any of them would have anywhere close to her level of experience by definition, um, in effect. And there's two risks you have. One is just how you conduct the day-to-day monetary policy. And the second is how do you handle the crisis or an unknown and it's that second that particularly worries me. We were very lucky to have had Tim Geithner, Ben Bernanke, where they were when the crisis hit. Um, I'd I'd hate to have a less experienced um, set of hands in that position. Uh, how do you wh- wh- when you see some of these names, Gary Cohn? How does that? Sound? I mean, I'm not going to comment on any oh. of the individual people, but none of those people. There's no one you can name that has as much experience being chair of the Federal Reserve as Janet Yellen has. Yeah, that's well, of course, but, but <laughs> that's my <laughs> that's definition. <laughs> I realize that's my definition. Um, but you know, she was chair, right. she was vice chair, she was governor, she was president, she was on the staff of a, a distinguished monetary economist, and and the results speak for itself. Um, some of these other people, I don't know, and, and and my worry is, you know, political is independence. You know, you're going to have a president if he runs for re-election. He's going to really want low interest rates. Mm-hmm. He's not going to care about you know what happens to the trajectory of inflation um, in the future, and um, you know I'd like to see the Fed keep its credibility. It's funny though when you do talk to people on the right and left side of Fed world, um, they do all seem to agree on one thing, which is the sanctity of the independence of the Federal Reserve. Whether it's Kevin Warsh or John Taylor on one side, or uh, Greg Mankiw or who I you know, and or or people like yourself, there does seem to be. A cult of independence, which is, which is a good thing. Oh, it served our country really well for eight years. I never commented on the Fed. Um, there's just been a certain amount of norm breaking in this administration, and so I am worried. Am I terrified? Do I know for sure there's a problem? No, but it's it's something that bears real scrutiny and monitoring to make sure that whoever he picks, whether it's you know any of the names you said. Um, or other names that are that are floating around out there, that once they get there, they're not you know President Trump's personal staff anymore. They right. are they are acting independently. And and look, there's there's che- checks in the system. The regional presidents who, you know, in the past I've sometimes been worried about their role. They could play an important role in checking any dramatic changes that are coming from the center. So uh, what, what are your plans now? Uh, civilian life, you've done it for now six months. Um, um, I just started as a um, professor of practice at the Harvard Kennedy School on July 1st. So moving up soon to Cambridge with my family. We'll be teaching oh, in the okay. fall. And you have to don- working, take uh, off your Yankees hat, put on a Red <laughs> Sox hat. Um, exactly. We are, we're, we're making the conversion. We're fair weather friends. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, good luck with that. And thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me.
Congress is out for now, but when they get back in a few weeks, it's going to be all about money, specifically the debt ceiling and tax reform. As you heard from Jason Furman, it's going to be a big lift all around for the Trump administration to get what it wants. Anyway, that's it for now and for the summer. The Exchange podcast will be taking a hiatus and back with another series in the autumn. I'd like to thank our producers, Bethel Hobte, Kate Duguid, and Andrew D'Antonio, and all of you for listening. If you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter at BreakingViews and at Rob Wancox. Thanks for tuning in and adios. Adios.